a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. The February 1976 edition of the Sunday New York Times Magazine features a baffling multi-page spread. Next to an ad for low-tar cigarettes is an article entitled Looking for the Next World. Celebrated investigative reporter James Phelan has been chasing a story about a weird New Age cult led by two people claiming to be prophets for months. Now he sits across from Herf Applewhite Jr. and Bonnie Lou Nettles while they sip bottles of Coca-Cola and preach about aliens. The would-be prophets estimate they have a couple hundred followers, and every last one of them believes that when the time is right, they'll be picked up by a UFO and ascend to a higher level of being. These people have abandoned their possessions, their careers, and their families because of Herf and Bonnie. They were told that the UFO would come within months, but already a year has passed with no sign of it. And James can't help but poke fun at them. It's not like he's taking any of this seriously. But maybe he should have. Because this silly New Age cult isn't like all the others. For the true believers, Herf and Bonnie's prophecy doesn't fizzle out. It ends in a scene that shocks the nation. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is... Crime of a Lifetime. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In the early 70s, for unknown reasons, things we could not understand... My life began to suddenly fall apart. It had been a very stable life, an acceptable life, certainly one that was considered legitimate and, and had respect to it in the community, as did T's life. That voice you just heard is of our main guy, Herf Applewhite, and yes, that is his name. And in that audio, he's describing how he met his non-romantic life partner, Bonnie Lou Nettles. These names, incredible. Already, we're at the top. But he calls her T. In a TV broadcast called Beyond Human, which is frankly a very appropriate title for this couple. But before meeting Bonnie, Herf is having a really hard time. He's this lanky, salt and pepper haired Texan who has done literally exactly what was expected of him his whole life. He graduated from college, he marries the May Queen, yes, brag about it, and he even considered going to seminary school to become a Presbyterian minister, just like his dad. 
but now he's 41 and his life has gone completely off the rails. He got fired from his well-paying job, his marriage of 12 years ended, he had a few failed flings. He's really struggling with his sexuality. All of his relationships are leaving him unfulfilled. And after he comes out as bisexual, his parents basically disown him. They think that he is the devil himself. So Herf is feeling really hopeless right about now, until he meets Bonnie. He meets Bonnie, and her name is Bonnie Lou Nettles. And I know I've said it before, but I just have to highlight it again. Her name is Bonnie Lou Nettles, and his name is Herf Applewhite. (laughs) I can't with these names already. But Bonnie's a lot like Herf. I mean, she doesn't quite fit into society either. She's got all weirdness of her own. So she's the mother of four. That's not the weird thing. She's a dreamer. Again, not the weird thing, but she spends hours looking up at the stars and musing about UFOs with her daughter. And they wonder, you know, what would it be like to leave Earth? Well, Bonnie has gone through a lot of the same problems as her. She's in the middle of getting divorced. She had a 23-year relationship with a Texas businessman, which didn't really survive Bonnie's obsession with dead people. And that's not like just because she's a nurse. She's constantly communing with spirits. She is, in fact, convinced that a monk who died centuries ago is at her side at all times, helping her discern astrological readings. She's got just spiritual guru vibes, Bonnie does. I don't know about you, Quinn, but I feel like we'd be friends with Bonnie, right? Or at least like Hmm. have her over for wine so we could just like pick her brain because she would entertain us. Look, I don't know if I'm inviting her over. It sounds like that monk might come too, and I'm not sure if he's, you know, judgmental or what. That's fair, and she's also bringing along spirits with her. But when she does seek the company of the living, it's usually people, you know, predictable, like mediums, fortune tellers, people who are in tune with otherworldly things. And at one point, one of those people predicted that she'll someday meet a mysterious tall man with light hair and a fair complexion. Now you might be thinking to yourself, what a specific description. (laughs) (laughs) But it will pan out. It will pan out. When Bonnie runs into Herf at the hospital where she's a nurse, she thinks this must be fate. She tells Herf that they are destined to be together. Mm, Platonically, of course. Slow down. Uh, She does ask him about his birth date and time, though, so that she can compare their star charts. So right then and there, Herf dashes away to his car to go get his birth certificate because the car is a perfect place for a birth certificate. And he feels this connection with her immediately. It feels like they've known each other forever. Bonnie's astrological reading convinces Herf that the universe has big plans for them. Here's Herf again. From that moment, my life changed. Herf and Bonnie don't waste any time. Pretty quickly, they just move in together and start a business. The Christian Arts Center in Houston. But, you know, it it isn't really Christian. I guess that's just sort of clever branding. They sell books. They offer classes in astrology, mysticism, healing, metaphysics, and comparative religions. And personally, I am not actually religious, 
but that does sound a little more uh, woo-woo than Christian. It feels to me like we should contact the Better Business Bureau because it feels a little bit like false advertising. But at this point, it's the 70s, and there are a lot of woo-woo ventures are springing up all across the country. And the New Age movement, as this is called, is just picking up speed. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age <laughs> of Aquarius. But even Bonnie and Herf know that their ideas are a little bit odd. I mean, Herf tells a journalist, we know that we are putting ourselves in jeopardy with three-fourths of the people of our past. A lot of people are going to say, old applesauce finally flipped. Now, that sentence actually doesn't make sense at all. No, I think he's saying, like, they've lost their marbles, their screws have come loose. I don't know. And maybe they have. The Christian Arts Center fails pretty quickly, but that doesn't stop Herf and Bonnie. If anything, it frees them. In 1973, they leave Texas altogether and embark on a cross-country trip in search of enlightenment. Now, if you're confused that these two are equal partners, they're in fact not, I would say. I mean, Herf is the follower of Bonnie, and he would follow her anywhere. He sees her as the visionary of the two of them, and she sees him as as her intellectual equal, but she's calling the shots. They travel for months in search of a revelation. They camp on the Rogue River along the Oregon coast, and one night, under the trees and stars, Bonnie has an epiphany that would define their lives for the next few decades. She and Herf realize that they are the two witnesses described in the New Testament's book of Revelation. <clears throat> Ooh, give it to us, Quint. I, give it to yes. us. <laughs> and I will give power unto my two witnesses. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall kill them, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Whoa, I have chills. How did you do that to your voice? I don't, I, I had a low tar cigarette. Wow, the echo and everything. It's just, I'm really impressed by your skill set. I didn't know that you could do that. It's really remarkable. I didn't but either. In case you didn't sort of get the meaning behind that, what that is saying is that Bonnie and Herf believe that they are destined to be martyred and resurrected before a world that would not believe them or their ideas. And they call this the demonstration. And listen, I don't know about you, but honestly, it sounds a little bit out there. But that's just me. That's just one person's opinion. I mean, you have one trip on mushrooms in an old growth forest and suddenly you're a biblical martyr and you're willing to die for it? Well, they don't, don't really know. believe they will die. They don't think they'll die. They'll, that's true. They won't die forever, at least. They'll die for, I don't know, a few days, then be resurrected. Then they'll take all the believers with them onto a UFO and ride to space utopia. Sounds great. By the way, all the non-believers carry will be consumed by the rapture, while Herf and Bonnie and the followers will evolve into their true form, next-level beings. You mean aliens. aliens. 
So with this new revelation, they have purpose. They have meaning in their life. So the two of them, Herf and Bonnie, start to spread their good word. They travel all across the U.S. and Canada, visiting occult bookstores and faith centers, spreading their message. At one church in Spokane, Washington, they write their mission on the register and run away before they get caught. The two witnesses are here, an unsuspecting Episcopalian will later read. Cute prank, you guys. At a Baptist church in Oklahoma City, they approach the preacher himself with their pitch, you know, and he throws them out on their behinds, indignantly informing them that he has Moses and Elijah and doesn't need anyone else. And also, Herf and Bonnie just don't have the same rings to their names as Moses and Elijah, you know? After that, they are a little more subtle. They write notes about their mission and place them in between psalms and Bibles all over the country. The two, as they have taken to calling themselves, no longer have steady income since neither of them are working their jobs anymore. So to make money, they clean septic tanks and pawn their jewelry. Hmm. For being super duper famous, uh, like the two of the main characters in the most read book ever. It doesn't sound very glamorous. They basically live out of beater cars littered with maps and religious literature. However, they are getting work done. You know, they're spreading their word. And wouldn't you believe it? They finally have one follower. Her name is Sharon Morgan, and she took Bonnie and Herb's mind-body awareness class a year and a half before, and she felt that purpose in their teachings. And so she decides to leave her young family behind to MC for the two. And she books speaking gigs and introduces them at events. She also lends them her credit card for gas because, you know... To perform, sometimes you gotta pay. Just ask the um, acting company I was involved with in New York City. (laughs) When enough people tell her that she's talking nonsense, Sharon returns to her two young daughters and husband. And, you know, her husband's pretty pissed. First his wife up and leaves him and their kids. Then she comes back from her cosmic midlife crisis with just massive credit card debt. So he sicks the police on Herf and Bonnie for credit card fraud. And when the police arrest them, they realize that Herf is driving a stolen rental car. A local Texas paper calls Herf and Bonnie the Netherworld Envoys. It's a great band name. In the picture in the article, Herf is clad in all black. He's staring straight at the camera, his hands held in front of him as he stands. And Bonnie sits to his left, dressed in a white jacket with a bold 70s lapel. And her gaze is just distant. She's not looking at the camera. She's not looking at her. She's looking up, really, to the heavens. You know, if this was a band, it's great cover art. To the charges, Herf pleads guilty to the car theft, and he goes to jail for six months. Meanwhile, Bonnie waits for him until he's released. But it turns out to not be a setback for these budding prophets because prison gives Herf a lot of time alone in his jail cell, and he writes the first written statement of his and Bonnie's beliefs. Once Herf is released, the two begin mailing out the statement to ministers, evangelists, and awareness centers far and wide. And soon, they get their big break. 
Clarence Klug, a psychic guru, reads their statement and wants them to come to Ojai, California. Now, Ojai is this hotbed of new agey woo-woo, and Klug runs an L.A.-based metaphysical group. He invites Herf and Bonnie to speak to his followers about UFOs. And around April 1975, somewhere between 40 and 80 people pack into a living room to hear the story of Revelation. Herf and Bonnie introduce themselves as guinea and pig before delivering a fire and brimstone speech. The rapture is coming, um, but if people can overcome their human forms by giving up alcohol, sex, romance, familial attachments, and other human behaviors, then, just then, they will be allowed to board a UFO on its way to space utopia rather than stay on Earth and die. Joan Culpepper, the host that evening, would later tell the New York Times, they landed on the line that night. They were very stern. There was not any kind of loving, kindness, or nurturing. They said anyone who followed would travel with them on a spaceship to a higher level to heaven. Many of the people in that room became the earliest converts to what the two called the human individual metamorphosis movement. Him, for short. They would later be called the overcomers, and then, of course, Heaven's Gate. All kinds of people are drawn to their message. Many are young, like Julie LaMontagne, a nurse reeling from the loss of her father, and Gary St. Louis, a recent college grad fascinated by UFOs. Some, however, are older. John Craig. He's a middle-aged successful land developer and former Republican candidate for Colorado State Legislature, and his wife, Marianne, is his high school sweetheart. And together, the two of them have six kids. His colleagues describe him as an ideal businessman with no problems, with perhaps the finest family in town. But John abandons his life completely to follow the two. One hot evening in July, his wife and six kids come home from a swim meet to find a goodbye note from John. With only pocket cash and his Chevy, John has left his children and wife of 21 years to seek out the UFO cult. And that might be the hardest part about being in Herf and Bonnie's movement. All of their followers have to cut off their relationships to their family and friends. In a TV broadcast called Beyond Human, Herf explains why this is so important. In a sense, our father's kingdom says, I'm it. If you're going to get into my kingdom, I have to be it. I have to be satisfactory to you. What I offer you has to be satisfactory. It has to be all you want. It has to offer you enough. Some family members play along with the disconnection, but plenty more aren't willing to let their parents, siblings, and children fly away in a spaceship without a fight. One such family member, Nancy Brown, tries to get her 19-year-old son, David Moore, back after he joins in 1975. She chases him from meeting to meeting. And when she does find him, he's different, businesslike and cold. His long hair has been cut short. His jeans and boots have been swapped for a white shirt and trousers. And he refuses to come home with her. All she can do is hope that this is just a phase and that it will pass. I just find that so heartbreaking um, because I think about the kinds of conversations I will have with my kids as they're older and what sort of cautionary tales to tell them and what to look out for. And I am telling you that joining a cult 
is not one of the conversations I plan to have. And the worries that I have are, are vast. But the thought that you would protect them from all these things and then the thing you would lose them to would be a cult? It, and to it be shakes helpless me up. and to be absolutely helpless because what and can to realize she do? it's just it and it feels like it's just as bad, just as deep a loss as losing them to uh, drugs or something else that you would think to talk about. Because it, uh, you can picture this mom going up to her child and them just looking at her like she's a stranger. It breaks my heart. After their speaking spree, Herf and Bonnie have increased their numbers by the dozens, and that sets off a full media frenzy. In fact, Walter Cronkite even covers the fallout from this on the CBS Evening News. A score of persons from a small Oregon town have disappeared. It's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity or simply been taken. There are newspaper and TV stories about the, quote, UFO cult, and most of them are as you might guess, not flattering. The two are called dangerous frauds and hoaxers, and their mission is mercilessly teased in cartoons and headlines. Eventually, the press digs into their backgrounds. Their full names are published. It's a kind of media punishment for going against the grain. And perhaps, in an attempt to rectify the media narrative, Bonnie and Herf do agree to be interviewed by James Phelan for the New York Times Magazine only to find that the ensuing profile is largely mocking. James calls Herf and Bonnie more suburban than galactic and wonders if they might just be scholars conducting a study of human gullibility. And seeing their names and this whole ideology dragged through the mud, the two realize that what they are experiencing is in fact the demonstration they have been waiting for. They are going to be killed in the streets. They're going to be killed in the press. You know, this was a part of the vision that they had for themselves is that no one would believe them and they're seeing it come to fruition. After this article comes out, no one is attending their meetings anymore. And again, that's further proof that this is what's happening. This is the revelation. The demonstration has occurred. The rapture is in fact imminent. Now is the time to gather their followers and prepare for the end. After nine months of campaigning, Herf and Bonnie decide it's time. The demonstration has happened, if, uh, you know, more metaphorical than predicted. But now it's time to prepare for alien abduction. It's April 1976, and Bonnie and Herf put out a call to their followers to return to them. Come and meet us in the Medicine Bow National Forest. Surrounded by towering pines and aspen trees, they will lay down the ground rules for what they call the classroom. Beyond the obvious give up all vices, sex, and relationships, students are to follow the 17 steps provided by Bonnie and Herf, behavioral guidelines necessary to overcome one's human condition. So activities like uh, inconsiderate conversation, clumsiness, procrastination, oversensitivity, rudeness, overfamiliarity, and defensiveness, those are all forbidden. 
And in addition to my favorite part of these uh, tenants, which is overusing resources like toothpaste, that is also forbidden. <laughs> I'd be out of there fast. I love a full squirt, you know. But the folks that are still in, the loyal ones, they are going to get some new names, all of them ending in OD, like Anodie or Mycodie. <laughs> to me, that is a dog that Garfield did not like, but according to Herf and Bonnie, Odie means child of God. Wow. Big stuff. And they adopt a new language. They call the houses crafts. The kitchens, they call neutral labs. The laundry is a fiber lab. That one's pretty clever. And the students' bodies that are referred to over and over and over and over again are called vehicles. It sounds really complicated to me. I'm kind of of the mind, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I don't know that they need to be... Um doing all these secret words. I've never found anyone to struggle with the word kitchen, but okay. Over time, they all divorce themselves from their old identities, what makes them human, so that they can become more like the aliens, which they hope to meet. Herf and Bonnie are pretty clear, in fact, on what aliens look like. And they're nothing like how the media portrays them as giant insects or slimy reptilians. Here's Herf describing what aliens look like in the TV broadcast. You're a creature that looks very attractive but has two eyes, some remnant of a nose, some remnant of ears, what you would call remnant, even though they function very well as a nose, as ears, have a voice box but don't really need to use it because they communicate in thought. They communicate with their minds. And that's an extraterrestrial. They believe aliens, or next-level bodies, are genderless and very pleasant-looking, oftentimes somewhat childlike or wisely gentle in their appearance. So, naturally, the two wanted to reflect that in how they dress their bodies. I'm uh, sorry, I mean their Quinn. vehicles. Thank their you. vehicles. Him followers adopt an androgynous appearance. They cut their hair very short, they stop wearing any makeup, and they dress comfortable in very simple, modest clothing. I don't know, slacks, sneakers, button-ups. I'm already 90% there, it turns out. Same. As Herf and Bonnie see it, the classroom will eventually need to be a flight crew. So it is imperative that they are a uniform team. In 1983, the promise of Heaven's Gate hits a snag. Bonnie gets some bad news. She has eye cancer. But her illness doesn't greatly alarm the group. They understand that their human vehicles will break down, so none of them believe she'll die. But after three years of fighting her cancer, she loses her battle and she dies. After Bonnie and Herf were martyred by the media, a UFO was supposed to come to Earth and physically collect the true believers. They were all going to pile into the spaceship together and head on out. But now it's very clear that that's not going to happen because their leader died prematurely. Now, when Bonnie dies, the cult loses more than just a leader. They lose the only person who could counteract Herf's more eccentric, wild beliefs. 
Bonnie was Herf's guide. I mean, he had been her first follower. And while he may have been the mouthpiece, she was the visionary. Herf is essentially spiritually widowed. And so his ideas become more extreme and there's no one there to really keep him in check. And soon after, he actually holds a ceremony where he marries every one of his followers. In his own words, old applesauce finally flipped. Now that Bonnie is gone, Herf decides that he wasn't one of the twos. He was actually Jesus. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you did look familiar, but I wasn't going to say anything. Bonnie, of course, is the Heavenly Father, a.k.a. God. Which just, it's got to be a little awkward to find that out after the fact. I'm just saying. Yeah, sure. Well, just as Jesus carried out God's will on Earth, so too was Herf carrying out Bonnie's will. Maybe the biggest adjustment to Heaven's Gate is just how they'll get on the UFO. Herf has to rationalize Bonnie's death somehow. I mean, they were all supposed to get on the spaceship together. But now, Bonnie's gone, and it seems like there's only one way they'll get there. Herf decides that in order to ascend to the next level, their bodies must die. Warning, red flag, extreme belief alert. Herf's promotion from alien visitor to alien visitor, who was also Jesus reincarnated, was not the only escalation the group saw under Herf. He's also exercising his own demons through leadership. I mean, as a queer man raised by a Southern minister, he is not at peace with his sexuality at all. One morning, he announces to the class that he has had a nocturnal emission, a.k.a. a wet dream. And while we learn in health class that this is quite normal, to Herf, it's a grave weakness. He tells the class that he's got this idea that might help them divorce themselves from their human vehicles, sexual desires, which are keeping them from overcoming. So he's like, hey guys, would anyone be interested in castration? They all know that sex is the greatest addiction that somebody has to overcome to become a next-level being. Herf has ground that idea into them. In a TV broadcast, he says that God is love. Only Lucifer would have you believe that sex is love, and he would use it to his advantage. He knows that as long as you participate in that drug, your capacity for recognizing the truth is just about as good as it is for someone who's had a half a dozen martinis. Now, the castration feels extreme to some, but then again, ascending to the next level was never supposed to be easy. And they do have a nurse on the crew, Lavati, a.k.a. Julie LaMontagne, and she even worked for an orchiectomist, a doctor who actually deals with testicles. That's a New York Times crossword puzzle word. You're welcome, folks. But everybody's still nervous. Imagine that. I mean, what Herf is asking, it's pretty risky, maybe even deadly. If the authorities find out, everyone's going to get in a ton of trouble. So Herf puts up a sign that says Mexico on the door to the room where they're going to perform the procedure because that way, if they ever get questioned by the police, they can say they went to Mexico to get the surgery and they won't actually be lying. You know, that is wild. I mean, it is one way to build a defense, but I got to tell you, I'm not nuts about this idea. You know who else isn't nuts about the idea? The nuts. 
Steve McCarter, or Srodi as Herf has renamed him, jumps at the chance to prove his devotion. A little bit about him. Before joining Heaven's Gate, Steve was a popular high-achieving teenager. Now Steve, or Srodi, is amongst the most zealous members of Heaven's Gate. He's ready to make any sacrifice to prove that he is worthy of entry into the next level. In fact, they flip a coin and he wins. And when you win, he gets to go first and he lies down on the table, ready to go under the knife. Lavodi begins her work with the scalpel and all seems fine at first. Relatively speaking, of course, someone's getting castrated, but suddenly things go very, very wrong. There's too much blood. So they try to call a priest to help. Ugh. They're trying to avoid any interaction with authorities, I guess, and the priest is just baffled. They need a doctor, not a minister. So the group is forced to take Sorodi to the hospital, where he stays overnight, and he is going to be okay. Two members, Janodi and Suwodi, and you're welcome for these pronouncers. We actually don't know how to say these names if that wasn't abundantly clear. They go to the pier and they actually toss the tainted testicle sack off of it. Just in case the police wonder why a group of religious cranks decided to perform surgery on one another. Sorodi's experience is treated just merely as a setback. It does not kill this idea of castration. They just now know they need real doctors to perform the procedure. So they close the TaskRabbit account where they were sourcing them. No. But they do find a few willing doctors. And around seven more members, including Herf, are castrated. The castrations happen in the early 90s when Heaven's Gate is beginning to feel like the end is nigh, it is near. It's been years and years of them waiting, and everyone's just a little antsy to get to the next step. Yes, they have ants in their pants, but little else at this point. <laughs> They've been working on a last-ditch campaign to recruit new members so that more may be saved from the coming doom. Since the last recruitment effort over a decade ago, the world has changed. Now Herf doesn't have to rely on handwritten flyers to get the word out. He's broadcasting a satellite program called Beyond Human. And Herf's recording hours and hours of home videos promoting Heaven's Gate. In one home video, he announces their most exciting advancement. We have a website now. You know, it's the popular thing. Everybody has to have a website. We have a website on the internet called Heaven's Gate. Heavensgate, of course, dot com. To make money to fund the cult, the group starts a business building websites for clients. And while they're there, they build their own website to spread the word of Heaven's Gate. They create a cool logo for themselves. Heavens is written in blue block letters over a galactic background. It's just, you got to see this. It's undeniably rad. Gate uses the same A as the one in heavens, but it goes downward in the shape of a keyhole. Wow. The letters of gate are rainbow. It's very 90s. Um, they've also digitally illustrated what they believe aliens to look like. And here's what they think they look like. They're silver, obviously, not green. Um, and they have big round heads with almond eyes. It doesn't sort sound like, very original. It's not unique. And that's what upsets me about this. It's not unique. 
No, I think it gives it even more credence because mm. they're just being honest. We all know that's what aliens look like. The design element is minor compared to how much information they pack into this site. Pages and pages of the group's history, their beliefs and links to videos of Herf sermonizing. And yet, after all this hard work and this really rad logo, the response is not what they hope. Would you believe it? The message boards have negative feedback. It's wild. They're called crazy and freaks, and they're actually told to kill themselves, which feels a little on the nose on this one. And as it turns out, trolls are as old as the internet. And just as it was in the late 70s, their recruiting efforts were met with public persecution yet again. Heaven's Gate starts to lose hope that they'll be able to recruit any more students, and they begin to think more and more about graduation. They've known for years that they would eventually exit their vehicles, their bodies. But even their leader doesn't seem to know when that should be exactly. And just like the New York Times journalist pointed out in 1976, the date that the UFO would come has never been specified. Herf needs a sign. And then he gets one. Longtime Heaven's Gate member Talodi likes listening to the Art Bell radio show. It's a late night AM talk radio show that features discussion of conspiracies, the paranormal, and the occult. Actually, I'm going to be honest, that is completely my bag. I would listen to that too. One evening in 1996, the show is covering the Hale Bob Comet. Discovered in 1995 by two astronomers named Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, the comet is supposed to be one of the most impressive astronomical events of the 20th century. As a part of its 4,000-year orbit of the sun, the Hale-Bopp will reach its closest distance to Earth in March of 1997. Many news outlets all over the world are reporting on this astrological phenomenon, but Art Bell shares a unique theory about it that makes Talodi's ears perk up. Also, though, the incredible photo of whatever in the hell it is, <laughs> you're about to hear near Hillbop something really big and something headed this way, something Dr. Brown says is sentient, is alive. When Heaven's Gate members hear this, they realize that the UFO they've been waiting 22 years for is on its way, trailing just behind the Hale-Bopp comet. In October of 1996, using the money from their lucrative website building company, Heaven's Gate starts renting a mansion in San Diego for $10,000 a month. They tell the owner of the two-story house that they are angels. But would you believe it? They still don't get a discount. The students of Heaven's Gate now have access to tennis courts and a swimming pool in their new extravagant suburban villa. They've tried their very best to save as many people as they can, but by now their recruiting efforts are mostly fruitless. They're not getting any new members. And also they actually really don't know how many seats are in the UFO. So I think probably less is better. You don't want to leave anyone out. They also decide to go ahead and have some fun before they leave Earth forever. They take a trip to an amusement park and they go to a movie theater. They go out to casinos. When they return to the mansion, they meticulously log every penny spent in their ledgers. And then they all settle in to watch one of their favorite shows, Star Trek. 
What if the story just ended there and they became Trekkies? What if? Ugh, I, I wish. wish. But after a whirlwind few months, all that's left to do is say goodbye and make sure enough information is left behind to inform others and counteract whatever media narrative is spun in the aftermath. Dozens of Heaven's Gate members sit down in front of a VHS camera, and the chairs are situated in a forested area outside and under direct sunlight. Most of the speakers have shadows on their faces while they say goodbye. Julie LaMontagne, Livodi, the nurse, nostalgically reflects on her time with Heaven's Gate. Uh, you've probably heard of the news media story in 75 about a bunch of people disappearing from Walport, Oregon. Well, we're still here. <laughs> and not for long. Um, we're very happy and proud to have been members of Tinto's class. And couldn't be happier about what we're about to do. Sarati, <laughs> a.k.a. Steve McCarter, who removed his testicles to prove his devotion, cautions that viewers should not assume members have been brainwashed. Somebody on the other side of this camera watching this tape would probably say, what's going on? You know, you all um, must not have a life or you, you're, you're deluded or you're, or you're brainwashed or whatever the thinking might be. I, I, it's hard to tune into. Um, from our perspective, from my perspective, this is, this is uh, Hudson. I mean, this is, this is the answer to everything. Elodi, a.k.a. David Van Sinderen, whose trust fund helped keep Heaven's Gate afloat, flanked by two other members and wearing a wide-brimmed hat, reminds the audience that even if they look dead, they won't be. One last thing. If you don't believe in us, we won't die though we may appear dead to you. Mostly, though, all of them repeat how happy they are to be leaving. 62-year-old John Craig looks calm. It's been two decades since he abandoned his wife and kids, and he's thrilled to be abandoning Earth. All I can say is that this is the most exciting time for us because this is the end of the class. This is everything that we've waited for. The overwhelming feeling in this group seems to be excitement. I was so struck in watching some of this footage and how young so many of the people are. And to watch them and see their eyes filled with this hope and know the outcome, it was just It's so unsettling. It's so unsettling. And I think... It's so scary to see how excited they are, right? It's so scary to see how happy they are and knowing what loss is going to follow for their loved ones and family and friends. Shortly after these videos are made, on March 26, 1997, the San Diego police get a 911 call to a rented mansion in a suburban villa. Hello? Yes, um, I need to uh, report uh, an anonymous tip. Who do I talk to? Okay. This is regarding what? This is regarding a mass suicide, and I can give you the address. When the police arrive at the scene, they see a million-dollar home surrounded by manicured shrubbery and palm trees. They hear birds chirping and Maseratis zooming through the streets, but they smell something putrid. A stench is emanating from the house. When they enter the home, the smell worsens, and they see bodies everywhere. 
lying face up with their hands at their sides on cots and mattresses. The bodies almost look asleep, and there's a uniformity in the way their heads have been covered. Yes, each person has been draped in a deep purple sort of eggplant-colored cloth with one point on the forehead and another pointing at the feet and one at each of the shoulders. The police have no way of knowing that that had been Bonnie's favorite color. At first, the authorities think that the dead bodies are all men because they're all dressed the same and in this androgynous way until they realize that there are women there as well. They just were groomed to not portray their gender. All of the bodies look more or less the same. They're all in black tracksuits with away team patches like in Star Trek and black Nikes with a swoosh. They each had an ID and $5.75 in their pockets. And that $5.75 in their pockets was because Mark Twain once wrote that that was the fare to ride the tail of a comet into heaven. A veteran homicide detective who was on the scene said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. The medical examiner, Brian Blackburn, would soon find out that the members of Heaven's Gate had poisoned themselves meticulously. Now, they did this in stages. So the first group of 15 mixed a lethal dose of phenobarbital, which is a drug used to treat epilepsy, into applesauce, as in old applesauce finally flipped, and they chased that down with vodka. Then they'd lay down, cover their heads with plastic bags, And once they had passed on, the remaining folks would clean up and set up the purple cloths and sort of pose the bodies. And then another 15 would repeat the process. Then the last nine. But I should say this was not a fast process. They could tell by the various stages of decomposition of the bodies that they died at different times. This took days. And the final two that died were not shrouded because there was no one left to complete the ritual. And they found Herf Applewhite's body shrouded in the primary bedroom all by himself. The news of the mass suicide is explosive. All over the world, people are horrified. President Clinton calls the suicides heartbreaking, sickening. Even Nike weighs in, discontinuing the decade's shoe line which Heaven's Gate members had been wearing when they died saying the deaths had nothing to do with Nike. The media that once teased this bizarre group now tries to make sense of this absurd tragedy. One journalist even travels to Herf's ex-wife's home in the rural Southwest, but his ex-wife Anne no longer knew the man who had just killed himself in San Diego. It had been decades since she last spoke to her ex-husband. The families of John Craig... David Van Sinderen, Julie LaMontagne, Gary St. Louis, and all the rest are left with only grief. David Moore's mother, Nancy Brown, tells the Washington Post, it's been, I'd say, 21 years of losing. It doesn't end. Okay, I think we can all agree. Cults are so scary. But also, I I have to admit, I do think aliens are real. Not to the extent that Herf and Bonnie believed in aliens or 
how aliens become aliens, but I mean, they got to be out there. Yeah, I do they have say to be. Absolutely. I do want to say that. Sure. I mean, I wonder if part of the appeal for some of these folks was the feeling that there's more out there and not just that, but there's more to us and mm-hmm. we're only seeing some of our potential. Those are two things I agree with as well. And I think that in a lonely or lost person's mind, those things can get really distorted and it can make them want to start a new life with a chosen family. It makes them very vulnerable. But these people were brainwashed. And I wanted to note, we talked about uh, Herf and Bonnie looking for these names, and the ones they settled on for themselves were Doe and T. But previous to that, they were going by Bo and Peep for a while, which feels really crazy because you're like, they are looking for sheep. Totally. I mean, I think anytime we cover a case like a cult, the thing I have to remind myself is that these victims were people in search of something bigger than themselves. And this is what they stumbled upon. I mean, I think it's easy to say, wow, that would never happen to me. Or how could they believe something like this? But I really always have to remind myself that They were people seeking answers and the people in charge are usually these magnetic manipulative charmers and that's how they got in this situation. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. This episode draws from many sources, but most of all, we relied on old reporting from the New York Times and on Heaven's Gate, America's UFO religion by the religious scholar Benjamin Zeller. And of course, we watched hours and hours of Heaven's Gate's own home videos that are still available online. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>